I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the book of Romans, chapter 12. <clears throat> We're going to be giving our attention to verses 9 through 16. It's typical in my neighborhood to see yard signs that, that either promote candidates running for civic office or signs that honor high school athletes proud, of proud parents. Um, but I recently noticed a sign that I had not seen before, at least, at least I hadn't seen one of these in, in my neighborhood. And this sign proclaimed this. In this house, we believe that black lives matter, that women's rights are human rights, transgender women are women, gay rights are civil rights, and love is love. A whole lot of things cross my mind. Um, I mean, first of all, those are all strong statements, right? Um, they represent the contemporary claims of our rapidly diversifying culture. It, it struck me that as a disciple of Jesus, I'm called to proclaim the presence and power of the kingdom of God and to interact charitably with neighbors uh, who hold different convictions. And, and then, <clears throat> what is love is love? I, I had to look that one up. Um, love is love, it turns out, is yet another contemporary truth claim. And according to the Urban Dictionary, that's, I didn't know, know what that was, um, but according to the Urban Dictionary, love is love is the belief that love expressed by an individual or couple is valid regardless of the sexual orientation or gender identity of their lover or partner. Love is love is the assertion that all people love whoever they choose in the way they choose even though many may want to deny them that right. Love is love is an answer for all the people feeling excluded or persecuted. I didn't know that. So when someone says, love is love, that settles the matter. It just, it just ends any argument since, as this is another writer put it, we have no right to push back or challenge someone else's choice to love. In other words, um, love is love. It is really the same as saying, I am what I am. Or, it is what it is. And there's nothing we can or should do about it. It's just... Just is. Friends, love is love 
is a claim with which disciples of Jesus are going to have to interact. It's a claim with which most of us, uh, with which we must interact, if for no other reason than the claim or the claims of our text today, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 16. And because we believe that Scripture is God's holy and authoritative word, um, if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me. This is an expression of our regard for God's word. We read this book like we read no other. The Apostle Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. It's God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that the context of these words are situated in another command, a command to be continually being transformed. These words are addressed uh, to your people, and um, we're thankful, Father, for the revelation of your will, your good, acceptable, perfect, holy will. And we are mindful today that um, we would not align ourselves with your will. We would not want your will. We would not comply with your will except by virtue of your grace powerfully working to renew our mindsets. So we ask, Lord, that you'd continue to do that. We're trusting you to do that, to renew our minds according to the truth of your word. Would you do this, Lord, and so that you and you alone would get all of the praise for the great working that you're accomplishing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You may be seated. <clears throat> so when it comes to the topic of love, no one has more to say about it than God. The world may say that love is love. The Bible says God is love. When it comes to the understanding to understanding what love is, God's definition is what matters most. When it comes to understanding the manner by which God intended human love to be expressed, Romans chapters 12, 13, and 14 really have more to say about it than almost any other biblical text. I'm going to drop this into the context again here. So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Therefore, uh, the way someone who has experienced God's um, many and massive mercies, the way they love is not the way the world loves. They don't love whoever they choose in whatever way they choose. Rather, they love the way a living sacrifice to God loves. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul writes, Think with sober judgment. That is, think like a living sacrifice thinks. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And that means, in order to think the way a living sacrifice to God thinks, and love the way a living sacrifice loves, we are utterly, totally dependent on God assigning to us the capacity to trust Him. We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust what the world says. And we will only love God and approve the will of God to the degree that we trust God. That's as true in any relationship. I'm not going to do what you say unless I trust you. And then in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Paul turns the focus from the love of God that disciples of Jesus have received to the love that we express specifically and particularly to one another in the local church. So here Paul writes, As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, of course, you know, when you're saved, we're saved into the church big C. But being saved into the church big C, this, this text would not make any sense if that's all that we thought about. I'm part of the church universal. No, no, we are members one of another. That happens in a local church, in a spiritual community. And so Jesus saves us into his body. He saves us into a local spiritual community where we devote ourselves to daily living sacrifice. 
It's in the local church where we experience the most remarkable world of mutual interdependence. And because God has so wisely supplied each of us with a different measure of grace, a different measure of his power and presence, as well as a different measure of faith, the local church is the perfect context for humbly presenting to God our bodies as a living sacrifice where we do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Who could think that way? It's all God. And then in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, the Apostle Paul is about to show us now what loving one another, the way a living sacrifice loves, really looks like. He's going to open a window. And I believe the claim of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, could be stated this way. Loving one another... Like a living sacrifice means that we love one another the way Jesus loves us. Loving one another like a living sacrifice means loving one another in the body of Christ, in the local church, the way Jesus loves us. Loving like a living sacrifice means loving Jesus' body the way Jesus loves his own body. Loving like a living sacrifice means loving the brothers and sisters in our spiritual community the way Jesus loves his bride. What does that look like? The Apostle Paul provides us with a very detailed description in Romans 12, 9-16. This text it is like no other biblical passage. In our English translations there are roughly 20 commands. That is amazing. It's amazing because when, when we seek to discover an author's main point in literature like this, we typically look for, some of you guys know what I'm talking about, we look for the command. If there's an imperative, that's usually the author's main point. In this passage, there are two to three commands in almost every verse. <laughs> and, and though this section begins with Paul's general admonition to let love be genuine, verse 9, and it includes hospitality to strangers, because that's, that's the right translation of the word in verse 13, as well as a believer's response to persecution, which we would assume comes from the outside, in verse 14, the commands here in verses 9 to 16 mainly address disciples of Jesus with regard to how we should love one another in the local church. It is a picture of loving Jesus' body the way Jesus loves his body. Keep that in mind. Just keep that right there. It is a picture of loving Jesus' bride the way Jesus loves his bride. And how does Jesus love his bride? Let us count the ways. First, 
Loving one another like Jesus loves means to love sincerely. In the world, it is so common, is it not, that politeness and social pleasantness often substitute for real love. But Paul writes in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. We all need to hear this. We can't just blow that one off. People pretend to love. You know that, right? We know that. People pretend. There are most certainly hypocrites. This is where we have a lot of common ground with the love is love folks. But contrary to what the world would have us believe, you know, actual real hatred, that's mostly rare in churches. I mean, yeah, there, there's probably some exceptions, but that would be mostly rare. But indifference, <laughs> that is another matter. In Minnesota, we called it Minnesota nice. In South Dakota, we call it South Dakota nice. Call it whatever you will. The goal is the same. Sound nice in a way. Be nice to a degree. But internally, ambivalent, distant, uncaring, unengaged, unloving. Most of us can, you know, it doesn't take regeneration or new birth to effect the kind of civility that, that can appear utterly sincere but it's just a veneer for actual hostility. <laughs> I mean, just, just think of your feigned warmth as you present your driver's license over to the police officer that just pulled you over. Because in your heart, I know what you're thinking, because I've thought it myself, may all your days be filled with traffic jams. <laughs> I just... It might be in a missional community or a discipleship huddle or life together as a family in our own homes. Love falls short if friends or spouses or parents focus merely on managing each other. Just keeping it organized. That's a job in and of itself. Love falls short if we aim at merely modifying that irritating, unwanted behavior so that my life is more convenient. If love is genuine, loved ones, it is more than behavior or relationship management. It's more than coexistence. It's people living together under the same roof, putting up with each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ's body, loving one another like living sacrifices, have higher goals. Like oneness. Like genuine, legitimate, the real deal love. Which includes, second, loving one another morally. If we love someone genuinely, we, 
we hate the evils that threaten that person. There is objective right and wrong. Verse 9 again. Let love be genuine. Abhor. That's the word hate. Abhor what is evil. Hold, hold fast to what is good. Now, according to the authorities at the Urban Dictionary, love is love means all types of love are valid. As long as it is between two consenting adults and they are of legal age and they do no harm to one another, I, I like this phrase, no matter how offbeat or weird it seems to others. It, it might not even be a choice. If I have fallen in love since that namely falling in love, that is an uncontrolled physical and emotional response to chemistry between two people that just happens. I think Paul would say that the love of a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God is not merely an uncontrolled physical or emotional response to chemistry. It's more than that. Jesus' love for his bride is holy. And it is wholly moral. And loving like a living sacrifice tests everything with a mind renewed by the Holy Spirit in order to discern what is the objective will of God and what is not and what is good and what is not and what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and what is perfect and what is not perfect to God. What God says right here is the standard and where such love exists Evil is abhorred, not merely lamented or celebrated. Jesus loved his bride that he died on a cross to make her holy according to God's standard. Third, loving like Loving one another like Jesus means to love affectionately. Love affectionately. L loving like a living sacrifice is not cold, unfeeling. Listen to the emotive language in, starting in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Verse 11, do not be slothful in Zeal, be fervent in spirit. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Some Christian literature 
has suggested that agape, that's one of those Greek words for love, agape is the highest form of love because it's dispassionate. <laughs> like God's love for sinners. It's just... Now, it's, it's true agape is high, agape is noble, agape is God-like, but God created us with emotions. And we most normally experience love emotionally. <laughs> it is by definition an affection. And, and, and family-type devotion to one another is more than buddies, you know? We're just more than good friends. We all know that over time, if we don't work at it, you know, romance in a marriage can grow cold. Same thing can happen in your spiritual community, your missional community. You, you stop the rhythms that build relationships and your, your heart will become distant and dull. And further, we all know that people who, there are people who are harder to love than others, right? Um, but in Christ... We should at least be open to emotional, emotional connections and being intentional about building them. It's risky. I know for those of you that have ever given your heart away and been rejected, you don't ever want to go there again. But sometimes we begin to feel affection for others that we wouldn't naturally, by virtue of chemistry, fall for. And it happens when we treat people well for a while. <laughs> right? I think that's what Paul's commending in chapter 12, verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Showing honor is an affection-cultivating, nurturing act. When we seek to honor others, you know, we have to stop the, the mental work about, well, doesn't anybody appreciate me? You know, don't people care for me? We have to shut that off. We honor others by calling them up. We honor others by noticing their contributions, by drawing attention to them, by thanking them publicly. We honor others by identifying evidences of God's grace in their lives, and we do it in their presence and in the presence of others. In the family, we honor one another with smiles when we see each other first thing in the morning, and with greetings by name and hugs, and gifts, and small favors. Jesus loves his bride from the heart. He looks, he sees, he feels, and so do those who love like a living sacrifice. Fourth thing, love earnestly. After affection, after honor, Paul accents passion, Fervor, 
resilience. Verse 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal. You know what a sloth is like, right? They just, you just, oh, come on, man, get going. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. And again, I think those who have been burned more than once have a tendency to be wary of, you know, passionate people, people that are all fired up about something. It's probably because maybe you were fired up about something one time and, and then, you know, it all crashed or you failed or you were um, betrayed or you had your heart broken or your dream that you were so fired up about died and your impulse, your impulse from now on is, is going to be Playing it a lot safer next time. You know, that's like a Vikings fan. You just, I am not getting excited about this at all. But isn't it zeal, right, that, that moves us to get up early and stay up late and press on through whatever obstacles in order to get her done? I'm excited about this. It was zeal for the pleasure that he felt in his Father's glory that moved Jesus to set his face like a flint toward the cross. It was for the joy of obtaining his bride that sustained Jesus on the cross. What is it that fires you up? What is your joy? What's your crown of boasting in Jesus on the last day? Is it not Jesus' bride? Is it not your brothers and sisters in Christ together in the presence of Christ on the last day? What could be greater than that? Fifthly, I got a couple more. Love patiently. And the key to real patience, isn't it, is yieldedness. Yieldedness to the plan and the purpose and the providence of God. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. To to serve the Lord, to be a servant of the Lord is to submit to the Lord. He's the captain. He's the king. Serving means yielding, yielding to his time frame, yielding to his order of events, yielding to his wisdom, yielding to his authority, yielding to his sovereignty, that he's going to get things done when it's his time. It's yielding to his goodness. Loving like a living sacrifice is always guided by the impulse that says, with resignation in a good way, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus promised us that in the world we're going to have tribulation. There there is no getting around the fact that there is trouble. There's always going to be something hard. And Jesus vows. Jesus makes a vow to his bride that includes having us and holding us. And keeping us for better or for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. How can we expect 
our love as living sacrifices for one another, Jesus' bride, to be any different, any, any easier. You know, the, I th- think the most useful thing about trials and tribulations and delays in what we long for is that they cause us to cleave to Christ in prayer. Trouble is God's servant. Trouble is God's servant assigned to draw us deeper into the glorious sacrifice of spiritual worship. Six. Loving like a living sacrifice means to love generously. Perhaps the reason God loves a cheerful giver is because cheerful giving shows true gladness, the true gladness that we feel in God. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And as I said, that that word translated hospitality in, in this text It means to love strangers. So you're contributing to the needs of your brothers and sisters in your spiritual community, but you're also caring for outsiders, the welcoming of strangers. Today, we we tend to use those words hospitality and entertainment interchangeably. We're going to entertain people, having people over. Hospitality in Paul's day, it included things like safe lodging in a day when inns could be dirty, dangerous dens of depravity. And and it was an essential to early church life. So clearly Paul means for our giving and showing hospitality to be more, it's more than the expression of a spiritual gift of giving or the spiritual gift of acts of compassion that is only given to some. Rather, what Paul means is giving and showing hospitality as an act of sacrificial love empowered by God's grace. And that's the way we love Jesus' bride. Seven. Love compassionately. Some of the ways, I think, as you go through this list, you see that they kind of get a little bit more intense, a little harder. (laughs) Um, Some of the ways that we love, uh, as expressed in these verses, require, let's just say, less of God's powerful mercy functioning in our lives than others do. Some require more, as is true now as we get to verses 14, 15, 16. Paul writes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So again, one does not need to experience new birth to to love the way love is love loves. 
It does not require regeneration of the human soul to respond to a felt need for emotional fulfillment or sexual satisfaction. It does not require the sovereign soul awakening work of God the Holy Spirit to love someone that loves you, does good to you, and consistently approves of you and pats you on the back and is such a pleasure and joy to be with. It does not require conversion. But it does require regeneration to transform us so that we may love like a living sacrifice in relation to those who offend us and wound us and cause deep harm to us. Typical response of the world today is to demand atonement. Exact revenge. Make them pay. I want justice. That's not enough justice. That's not enough justice. There's never enough justice. There is no atonement. We need to be made new to love that way. To forgive. To bless those who curse us. Think about this one. Which is harder for you? Rejoicing with those who rejoice or weeping with those who weep? Think about it. So when someone in your missional community is brokenhearted over a loss, something went bad and they've got a huge need, They're groaning over some family pain. They're troubled with bad health. It seems like the wheels are just falling off everywhere they turn. Does your heart break for them and lean in with compassion? Or do you think secret thoughts like, they brought these things on themselves. It's their unwise, disordered life that got them here. They haven't been taking care of themselves. They've been fools. They're just getting what they should have gotten. When someone in your discipleship huddle is happy, happy about their next weekend getaway, exulting in their promotion, or the success of their children, and all the other things that they're rejoicing in because how great life is for them, Does your heart join them in their joy? Or do you think secret thoughts that are hard and darkened by jealousy? Only hearts made new can discern and test and fulfill this imperative. Eighth, and this is the last one. Loving like a living sacrifice means to love humbly. So more than likely, Paul is thinking here about, you know, the Jew-Gentile relationships that, you know, in this, in this local church that had generated more than their share of tension. And so he, this is what he writes in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. 
<laughs> Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We, we don't have the Jew-Gentile tension. At least I don't think so. Um, but for us, it is the challenge of loving, loving with lay-down-your-life love those brothers and sisters with different convictions about their kids' education or the end times or whether to get vaccinated or not or leaning into relationships that are likely to advantage our interests and energize our common affinities or lean into relationships that aren't going to profit us in any way. They're just going to be high maintenance, just draining the life out of us. That's where the tension lies for us. But loved ones, our hope and our confidence is that we have a great Savior who loves us, laid down his life for us. Jesus claims us, those who have put our trust in him, he claims us as brothers and sisters, and he loves us. He laid down his life for us. He honors us by adopting us and treating us like beloved children and friends when we were hostile to him. He adds honor upon honor by giving us, he gives us roles to fulfill and work to do for the strengthening and the building up of his body. He commands us to burn with passion for the sake of his, his praise and worship among the nations. And, and, and that reminds us of, of his own stout resolve and how he humbly suffered and died in our place. And, and he hears our prayers and he intercedes on our behalf when tribulations trouble us. He meets our needs. And when we were strangers to him, he made himself like us. He made himself lowly and associated with the lowly and drew near to us. And he planned and fulfilled a redemption that was wise in the sight of all. This is how Jesus loves us. And now he offers to each of us the privilege of walking and loving the way he did. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Father, there's really no way that we would even be inclined to love this way except in accordance with the power of your mighty mercies that have been shown, not just shown, but asserted. You asserted yourself. You've caused in the hearts and souls of many in this room 
deadness and unresponsiveness to come to life. You've caused blindness to give way to seeing glory. Glory in the face of Jesus. You've caused dullness and enslavement to disobedience to give way to a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. You are the one who is at work to cause us to will and to act according to your good purpose, including loving as you loved Lord Jesus, loving as a living sacrifice. And for that, we have nothing to contribute. You've done it all. And we love you. And we thank you. And we treasure what you've done. And we proclaim it again today. Jesus, you died for our sins. Jesus, you died for my sins. Be exalted. Nourish the hearts and souls of your people now. In your name we pray. Amen.